Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I have to tell you something, people. Since I moved back east, I've been seeing guys that, you know, I I grew up with, you know, from elementary school, junior high, and high school. And, like, nine of us went out for beers the other night. And I was sitting there amazed, because, you know, I'm divorced, I don't have kids. And I'm amazed that I'm looking at my friends, and we're all busting each other's chops. You know, we remember the old crazy stories. And I'm thinking... All these guys, except maybe one, have been married for like 20 years. They all have like kids who are graduating college or in college, kids who are in high school who are great athletes, and me, I'm just hanging out and all I can boast is that I'm the only one wearing a hat. Anyway, we have a great show. Uh, we have a very, very funny man, a, 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 you know, a very renowned comedian. You know, the guys, the guys know it everywhere, you know, from the Howard Stern Show. We just came out with a great book called uh, The Joke Man, Bow to Stern. My guest is Jackie Martling. How you doing, Jackie? I am doing excellent, Steve. Thanks for having me on. I'm huckstering my book wherever and whenever I can, but there's nothing like uh, guys from New Jersey that were the, the heart of the Stern. Uh, the heart of the Stern audience was the Jersey and the Philadelphias, and uh, and I, I I loved it. Those those you know you just put me in that space myself, you know. Well, you know what's funny? You know what's funny? When when Stern first came to Philadelphia, I used to do comedy. I used to work at the Comedy Factory Outlet. And at the time, John DeBella hosted a show. And as people, if you're not familiar, John DeBella was a zookeeper, was huge. And then Stern came in and just blew him out of the water. But it was so funny because we were doormen. We were doormen because we would get stage time. You know, we get paid like five bucks under the table. And I remember DeBella would tell us, if anyone says Stern, I want him thrown out because people would come in and heckle and yell Stern, and it was it was wonderful. <laughs> so so now now you 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 did stand up now as a kid were you funny? How did you get this great career going? I mean, I you know what I gotta I gotta stop you for a second. Now I was I was doing very well in Philadelphia for years before I ever got near the Howard Stern show. I don't know if you're aware of that. Were you doing stand up? I was doing stand-up at the Comedy Factory Outlet, at the Comedy Works, the Comedy Cabaret, Bananas, and you know the famous story about the girl getting naked on the Stern Show, right? Tell, tell, tell my listeners. Well, it, it, it's so funny because I tell a story all the time, It's uh, Steve, it's very self-aggrandizing, and people accuse me of being self-aggrandizing, but I only tell the truth, and it's, it, it's hopefully interesting. And when you say Comedy Factory Outlet, it's just too perfect. I never have listened to the Stern Show. When I was on the show and we're on vacation or anything like that, I just never have ever listened to it. The only times I ever listened to it was when I first met those guys. And I used to give Howard some ideas or some jokes, and I would listen to see if maybe he used them. You know what I'm talking about? Right. So one day, very early on, uh, I was... I actually remember where I was. I was on a stool fixing something in the kitchen. And the reason I remember is because it was so odd for me to be fixing something. <laughs> and and Gary said, oh, there's a girl here who wants to take off all the clothes. And he's like, well, bring her in. And the girl came in, and Howard described her. I guess she was wearing a, a, a fur coat. And she sat down, and he said, who are you? And I swear, Steve, I'm not making this up. She said, my name is uh, Maria I work the door, and I'm a comedian at the Comedy Factory Outlet in Philadelphia, <laughs> and my favorite comedian is Jackie DeMartling. I almost fell off the ladder. Nobody ever talked about it again. I, somewhere that tape exists, well, because what, that scene was actually in the movie. I worked with her, and her, 
Her name was Maria Merlino, and she went to clown school. This is no lie. Like, she worked the door, and she had a you, filthy... You know what's funny? Year. I knew her last name was Merlino, but there's a girl on the air in New York named Maria Melito, and I said, thought to myself, oh, maybe my my my, uh, my memory was playing tricks. Yeah, no, she was very popular, and she wound up marrying a guy who used to blast the Stern Show on, on the on the in the newspaper, Stu, Stu Bykowski. Yeah, Stu, it's funny, Stu used to have a column, and when we were young comics, he would always do a quote of the day, and I remember one time I, I made that, like when I first started doing comedy, I was in the Daily News. I couldn't believe it. And I was sitting there going, I did, I, the joke was something like, I, I served jury duty. I made $5 a day. Now I know what a migrant farm worker feels like. And it was in the paper. And I was so happy. And it's funny because, yeah, and everyone wondered what she saw in him because Stu was like this older guy and <laughs> like this crotchety He was a nice guy, but yeah, he was a crotchety old nerd, you know. And she was so cute. And I heard, you know, a few stories about her here and there, but I really liked her. She was adorable, and she was always there. You know, I knew John DeBella from Long Island. He was a disc jockey on Long Island in the 70s, and I actually went on his radio show a couple times in, like, 1979 and 1980, and I worked with, you know, I worked with all those guys. You know, I stayed at the Society Hill, and I worked Comedy Works, and I worked with Clay Heary at The Outlet. And Andy Scarpati, at the, and and then with Barney at Bananas. I mean, I loved Philadelphia, and but but Cabela was always a creep, and it was so cool when we, when he got his comeuppance, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, he used to, he used to let name drop a lot. Like we'd be sitting there, you know, he'd be hosting Friday nights, and you'd hear his story. He'd be like, "Oh yeah, I was over at Daryl Hall's house, you know, unrolling his whatever, you know, certain rug," and we're just like, "Dude, come on." No, no, I know he was. You know, I always describe him. He's the guy who holds a cigarette between his teeth. You know, one of those guys. You know. <laughs> so now, but my my story was I was a rock and roller and not a good one, and I just learned the whole story of how I got to the Stern Show is in my book, and people are really loving the story because they think they know it, but they have no idea what I went to. I lived four lifetimes before I ever got near Howard. I didn't get my first paycheck until like 1986 when I was 38 years old. I mean, I was a lot older than everybody. And I did rock and roll in the 70s. And then by the end of the 70s, my band was so bad. But over my lifetime, I accumulated, I just know more jokes than anybody in the world. And I really literally do. Uh, if you follow me on Twitter, at Jackie Martling, I tweet jokes every day, and, uh, you know, I've been on with Gilbert and Bennington and Anthony and Artie and all these guys, and they love me because I tell so many jokes. And uh, when my band broke up, I was like, what am I going to do? And I had met some fledgling comedians, and there was no such thing as comedy on Long Island, so we started a show at a bar room, and I started recording me telling jokes, and I told my girlfriend, I, I really got to make an album because I had worked at a studio and knew how to do that. So I, I borrowed money, and I recorded it. Steve, I recorded my first comedy album on cassette. Wow. It was literally recorded on cassette in an upstairs restaurant bar. Well, actually, all three of my comedy records were recorded on cassette. You know, the, the, this is LPs. This is 1979 comedy LPs. I was the first guy. You know, I'm not like Bill Cosby had albums and George Carlin, had, but I'm talking about the first 
Nowadays, everybody's got a CD at the door. In those days, 1979, I had only been a comedian for six months, and I had an LP. And I was selling it to people at the door. And the other comics, well, you know how the comics are. They were making fun of me, breaking my balls. And all of a sudden, one day, somebody said, you know what? We made 50 bucks a piece today, and Martley made an extra 75 bucks. Maybe he's not so stupid. And, and by 1982, I had three records out. And I was sending them everywhere. You know how you scrape and claw to try and get somewhere, and it's so tough. Yeah, look at, you know, you get, you get a joke in the Daily News. It's like you, you're probably high for a week from that, right? You know right. what I'm talking about? Yeah. And, uh, and so I sent my records, and Howard called me up and said, we love your records. Come in and sit in on the show. And I sat in on the show, and they said, you're a lot of fun. Come back next week. And we went to the moon, you know, three years later, I became a regular member and became, you know, I had started passing them notes and making them funnier. And we went to Pluto. Now, That's simple. Now, when, because no, everyone knows you have this great, you know, um, all the jokes, you have stumped the joke, man. When did you start learning jokes? Like, I know for me, when I was younger, I remember, you probably remember, you remember the Larry Wilde joke books, the Polish joke books? Uh, well, of I, course. I, I, that was my competitor. I was trying to get a joke deal. Uh, a joke book deal in like 1978 and 79 and Larry Wilde, we were penthouse and I knew him very well. And I finally got, after he lost his gig at Pinnacle, I finally got my joke book deal. I had four joke books out uh, on Pinnacle joke books and they became a uh, zebra. You know, I had four joke books in 79, 80 and 81. But before that, like when I was a kid, uh, I, I, I if anybody's interested in this stuff, you got to get the book because it's it's pretty silly. But, you know, after you get interviewed enough times, people ask questions and you can't just say, I don't know. And I thought back and when I was a little kid in third grade, I remember my cousin coming in and we're having a snowball fight. And we're all sitting on the floor, freezing our asses off. We're all little kids, like third and fourth grade. And my cousin was in eighth grade and he came in and read a dirty poem. And the guys were all just entranced they were spellbound and i was like wow like something in my mind must have said wow that's cool and i've remembered every joke i've read or heard since then it's pretty scary it's uh i mean i graduated from college in 1971 i graduated from michigan state as a mechanical engineer but i used my diploma to roll pot you know all i cared about was playing music and telling jokes and that's what i've done the entire literally no more jokes than anybody in the world i'm pretty sure where do you constantly find your jokes because you know it's so funny i always sit there i'm one of these people old school that you know some people you know especially a lot of younger comics are like oh they call them street jokes if you do a street joke you're a hacker and it might to me is if someone is a pro and they can tell a old joke better than anybody buddy hackett did for years but it amazes me when people can tell jokes good when did you sit there? I mean, where do you constantly find material? How do you know so many damn jokes? Well, my whole life, my entire life, I was the last guy at the party, the last guy at the bar. You know, when there's a group of guys standing around telling jokes, if you told a joke and then another guy told a joke, I would have two or three lined up in my head, and by the time it got around to me again, I'd have another 12. And I'd stay until all hours, you know, I just listened and listened and, and listened and listened to Red Fox albums and Henny Young. And I, I, but I had absorbed these things over time. I had a band in the 70s, and we used to tell jokes and play original songs. 
And since you tell jokes, people always have a joke for you. And Steve, I'm not exaggerating. I'd be at the bar and somebody come up and say, all right, I got a joke for you. And I would say, okay, I'll count down from 10. And by the time I get to zero, if I don't know the joke, I'll buy you a drink. I never bought anybody a drink. And that was in the mid-70s. That's almost 10 years before Stern. I mean, I just knew all the jokes. I mean, I'm always hearing a new one. And I go wild when I hear it. That's why I listen to everybody. I can tell so many stories about jokes that I know and love, and I can tell you where I heard them. And, you know, because sometimes they slip through the cracks, and the stories about how I heard them or where they came about, I just never get sick of telling them. And uh, it's, it's just interesting. But you should see people go crazy trying to tell me a joke I haven't heard. You, I mean... <clears throat> You know, famous people, that, you know, people like, oh, this is Jagged Joke Man, and they're always like, oh, yeah, all right, well, here's one, and they'll say two minutes, and boom, I know the answer. You know, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Michael Masden and James Toback, you know, they go, they go to start a joke, and they get jaws drop. They say, why the chicken? And I'll say, to get the other side. They'll go, jeez, <laughs> you know, and but, but that's all I know. What good is it? You know, I'm sitting I'm wearing a barrel. I don't even have any clothes anymore, you know. But I do know the jokes. Now, now you mentioned earlier, you know, you started uh, in New York, in Long Island. Now, was that the, the Long Island 11? Was that like, who was, who was the guys you started out with in Long Island? The Magnificent, yeah, we, the Magnificent Seven. We, we, the bunch of guys, I, the, it's funny, this place called My Father's Place on Long Island just reopened after 30 years, after you got a new location. It's all the big rage. Way back in the 70s, my band, when we played at this showcase bar called My Father's Place, you know, the Stones that showed up there and Bruce Springsteen, I mean, it was a pretty famous place. And it was a big deal when we got to play there. And we went to do our sound check one day, and the owner, this cheapskate, Epi, Michael Epstein, had booked gong show auditions before our show that night to make a few extra dollars. So we couldn't do a sound check. So I'm watching these guys audition for the gong show. And the two of them are comedians. And they weren't very funny. And I went up to one of them and I said, geez, how the hell did you get to be a comedian? You know, I tell jokes too. And he goes, uh, simple, I had cards printed up. He gives me his card. I still have the card. The guy's still one of my best friends. And Richie Minervini, you might even know him. I know the and name. And he says, yeah, we all go on. We, we go to Richard M. Dixon's White House Inn. So it was like a little variety showcase on Long Island where the guy had surgically changed his face to look like Nixon. I'm not making that up. <laughs> and it was it was it was Eddie Murphy, Bob Nelson, Rob Bartlett, me, the whole gang of us. And the guy wouldn't pay us. So me and Richie found this restaurant that would let us do a show and charge people to get in. And that's where comedy started on Long Island. It was a place called Cinnamon in Huntington. We had no money, so I started a joke line to advertise the night, which is still going. 516-922-WINE has been going for 38 years. It's in my house. It's going off right now. <laughs> it's funny. It's 516-922-9463. People have been giving out. Rick Dees named me the joke man in 1985, and he used to give out the number in Los Angeles and tell people that it was Tom Selleck's whole phone number. <laughs> And people used to go wild calling it. So the whole thing built into, uh, you know, into the comedy scene on Long Island. And there was so many that together the most. 
And we decided, I, somehow we came up with the name The Magnificent Seven. And it was uh, Dave Hawthorne, Bob Woods, Rob Bartlett, uh, Dave Hawthorne. Uh, Bob Woods, Dave Hawthorne, Jim Myers, Minavini, me, Nelson, and Bartlett. There were like seven of us. And and we worked everywhere, all the time, all the time. And the, and the, the one show was so successful that Richie and his brothers started the East Side Comedy Club in 1980. And that was the beginning of comedy, actual real comedy clubs on Long Island. You know, like a year later, the people from Governors came to me, and I started Governors. And we had a full-fledged scene going, and it was it was exciting. You know, it was exciting as hell. It's funny, Woodsy. Uh, I I worked with him when I it was one of my first gigs ever featuring. It was a place called Tracy's at the Bowman in uh, Have a Grace, Maryland. It later became or known Townsend. And I still remember I'm sitting there and, and Woodsy, I'm doing, he bought me a shot and I had to drive back to Philadelphia from Maryland and it, from Baltimore. But he just looked at me and goes, you're, you're young and you're good looking. Why are you doing comedy? You, you can get laid however you want. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Now, wait a minute. Now, I think that's the place where he, where he died. No, he died at the Carousel in Ocean City, Maryland. So I think I played that the week after. Oh, but, but it was in Maryland. It was yeah. in Maryland. That's, that's like, oh, wow. Now, yeah, now, he, was, he was such a character, man. He was, a, he was my, you know, he was one of my first comedy pals, you know. Now, now, where when you after you started in Long Island, where did you guys start getting work? Because it always fascinates me that there wasn't a lot of clubs. Did you guys start going into the city, or where did you start getting work? <clears throat> no, no, I did exactly the opposite. What what I did was uh, there was a show at Cinnamon that we had started, but I had an amplifier and a guitar and extension speakers, and I was putting on shows everywhere. There was a guy named Ron Richards that was doing it in, in New Jersey, and I was putting up shows, and the bar owners loved it because it was a night without the uh, without the loud music, you know, and I'd get, they, they'd pay me an amount of money, and I'd hire two or three comics to do the show, and I'd take the difference, you know, I'd host it, and I'd be the producer, and I provided work for so many guys, and then when we were doing the show at Cinnamon and Huntington, the guys from the city were coming out to us because instead of working for $10 and a hamburger at Comic Strip, you know, they're getting 50 bucks, they're smoking pot, they're getting drunk, they're meeting chicks. You know, they started doing the same thing in New Jersey. And then Governor's happened, and it was very slow, but there was like the East Side Comedy Club and Governor's Comedy Shop. And then in the early 80s, very slowly, the clubs just started popping up around the country. They just, you know, in the early days, it was just Garvin's in Washington and a few clubs in Philly. And then we started our two clubs. And then the next thing you knew, they, there was, they were everywhere. You know, it was, it's hard to believe there was a time when that wasn't, that when they weren't rampant, but they really weren't. And then all of a sudden they were, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was crazy. It was, it was such a, such a, a growing it just grew so fast it was a wild thing to behold but we were right there in the in the middle of it we didn't realize till we looked back just like the stern show got so big over time like you know you had to step back from it to say whoa look what happened this thing got out of control you know what i'm saying but now what was your act like as a young guy were you were you doing the, the all joke jokes were you writing i mean what you was know, your act? i always did jokes but when i start you know when i really started as a comic I was kind of doing, you know, some of that, you know, my family and, and this and that, but they were jokes, you know, they weren't, they weren't true stories, but it was kind of an act. But then at some point I said, you know, this isn't me. 
what you know, the whole world is, is talking about, you know, their apartment and their girlfriend and how rotten their lives are. And I mean, I was, a, you know, basically not a happy guy, but a happy joke teller. When I was telling jokes, you, you couldn't touch me. So that's what I did. And it was so funny because in 1979, there were like 150 comics. And I was the only one telling jokes. And now there's 150,000 comics. And I'm still the only one telling jokes, except Gilbert, Gilbert started telling jokes, too, you know. But I, I've always done it, and that's what I love. You know, it, it's kind of ridiculous, because if you want to be a comedian, there's two hard and fast laws, and I know you know it. The two rules are you don't tell old jokes, and you don't laugh at yourself. And, that, and that's all I do is tell old jokes and laugh at myself. Now, now, because you told the old jokes, and that's story, and that's, I've stuck to it, you know. In in the book, you write, you have a great story about you and Rodney, and and the thing is, how did okay, you were telling old jokes, but you must have been writing, or was it the knowledge of old jokes that helped you write jokes for when you met Rodney Dangerfield and actually started yeah, yeah, selling well, jokes? What, what you know, there was really one joke that really keyed me into him, and it's the whole the whole thing about writing and joke. It's very interesting. I'm real. I'm a scholar of this stuff. Like uh, this guy Gershon Legman was the the guy when it came to collecting jokes, and you know he was. You know they featured him in the, in the Aristocrats, and they showed his book. But meanwhile, I had been pen pals with that guy for 20 years when the Aristocrats hit. When when Penn Jillette and Paul Provenza came to take me to the Aristocrats, they said, "Jackie, we had to put you in this movie because we when we Googled." The joke, the aristocrats, there were only two hits on the entire web, and they were both yours. <laughs> because I had my version of the joke and Gershon Lakeman's version of the joke. And uh, we had been pen pals for 20 years, and it, it just there's nothing new under the sun. And that, that's the point. And, uh, you know, if you think that you can come up with something about sex or cum or piss or shit that hasn't been said already... So now you're out of your mind. You know, I mean, it's it's all been done, all been said, and uh, and I, you, you saw it in the book. A guy called me up in the middle of the night, and uh, he was in Peru, and he told me a really, really, really funny joke. And I said, "Wow, you know, that would really fit Rodney Dangerfield." And when my friend said he had a had a route to him, I wrote out a bunch of jokes for Rodney, and then that same guy, Richie Minervini, the same guy from. You know, the, 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 from the comedy, from the first comedy club. And then it turned out he was lying, that he hadn't really been to Dangerfield. So I just sent the jokes blind to, to Rodney. But I had taken a bunch of old jokes and switched them around. To, you know, he's got a, he had a very specific persona, so it was easy to write for. It was hard to get him to use a joke, but it was easy to get in, his, in step with him, you know. And he just really took to the two-bagger joke and... Uh, and that led to that, and we, I wound up going away with him. And it was just, you know, we weren't bosom buddies, but the two weeks we were away, we, we were inseparable, and it was just like, it was unbelievable. You know, you, you've been on trips with people. You know, you go on a trip with somebody, it, it's a bonding like never before. You know what I'm saying? What was it like for you a young as a younger comic just to be with him? I mean, you know, I know you said there, you know, I mean, did you did you watch every move? Did you Did you try to... Getting knowledge from I, ca I cannot tell you. I cannot tell you. I cannot express the excitement. I I sent the jokes to him when I had hardly started, and he called me. And then I started uh, 
I, I had my out, first album out, but I was so fledgling and so young. And to, like he was, he was my favorite by far before I, I never thought in terms of being a comedian ever. I only turned to trying comedy when I completely failed. I thought I was going to be a songwriter or do something. You know, I never wanted. To, I never tried acting. I never tried to do anything. And then uh, when I started telling my jokes on stage, I didn't even want to go to the city because it made no sense to tell old jokes around New York City because I'm not going to get on Carson with them. So I was producing shows and making records. And when I was with him, I just laughed and laughed and like watching his act. Of course, I watched every second of his act, you know, all week, but I already knew his act. You know, I sat in the back and I was the guy who catcalled to him and, you know, the whole thing. Uh, but, yeah, of course there's things that you pick up, you know, it, and there's such subtle... I'm almost embarrassed by what I learned from him. I mean, literally embarrassed. Because <clears throat> I was brand new, and, and when we first got to Vegas and he went on stage, he'd do a joke or two, and then he'd look down and say, and you, sir, take your hand off your pee-pee. And the crowd would go nuts. And then after a couple of times, I'm like, wow, how, you're going to laugh at me. You're going to think I'm an idiot. But I said, man, how, how lucky is he that every night there's a guy with their hand on their Johnson? <laughs> and then I realized, of course there's nobody with their hand on their Johnson. <laughs> the guy he picks on knows that he's not doing it, but it's funny to him. Nobody else knows it. You know, and there was these even something in my app, one of my CDs, where I say, look at this, big tits right in the front. And I point at a girl. She could be flat as a board. It doesn't matter. And as obvious <laughs> as that is, these are things that you just learn. You know, it's 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 very odd. It's very it, it's it's so much fun. It's, it, it, you know, whenever you're learning, there's nothing more exciting than learning, whether you're reading or traveling, because your mind is moving, you know, and uh and it was just great. And I, you know, I had some situations with him where I gave him an idea for a joke and talked him into it, and then it bombed on stage. It was just a storybook trip, you know. And, and people, are, people are loving my book because these are all things that, you know, I would never have gotten to tell any of the tales on the Stern Show. Give me two seconds. I would tell a story, and people would love the story, and I'd get done, and he, they'd say, "Oh, that story sucks," because they, you know, that was the. The whole point of the Stern Show was that I didn't have any talent and I didn't know what I was doing, you know. But meanwhile, the stories were great. People say, wow, we love when you tell stories on the show. I say, well, tell him. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, when you when you started working for Stern, as you said, it, it, you sent him your album, your CD, your cassettes, and he started going in and it took three years. What were you doing in those first three years? Were you, when you would pop in there, you would just hang out? They would tell you a story? I mean, how did you guys get started? No, no, for the, well, for those three years, I, I was working at Governor's Comedy Shop. I was, the, I was the producer and booker. So me and my girlfriend, who became my wife, we were making money doing that. And then I was doing one day a week on NBC, so I made a deal with Mark Magnuson from Rascals. I said, why don't you have your audition night on Tuesday nights? I can promote it on the, on the Stern show, and then I can come down and do the show, and you can pay me good money because you're getting promoted. So I'd go and do the show once a week, and Howard would say, yeah, Jackie, tonight Jackie's at Rascals in West Orange, New Jersey, and I would go down there and, uh, and host the open mic night and get paid decent money and get drunk and have a free-for-all. And then I was doing my comedy wherever I could. You know, I was promoting shows. You know, same thing. Just I just kept hustling and kept hustling. That's all. Now, when you started, when you became a regular in the Stern show, you had to get in very early. 
that must have been very hard as a comic because you know comics are not notoriously known for waking up early and for you if you're performing out at night and we can all say the same thing you can sit there and say you know if your buddies are performing oh i'm gonna go i'm gonna do my set and i used to do it in philly a lot i'm gonna do my set and come right home well you don't because you sit there you go and you start talking you know how comics like this sit and bullshit and bust balls how are you pulling that off i mean you had to get up at like 4 30 in the morning steve steve it 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 was it was so crazy like i, I keep the, I, you know i didn't do that many gigs during the week obviously you know but um you know, like you say, and then when you get home, you, it's hard to go to bed. You know, when I was doing comedy late at night in New York, they used to play three Mary Tyler Moores, then two Bob Newharts, the old show, and then here's Lucy. And one of the New York comics said, yeah, here's Lucy is God's way of telling comedians to go to bed. Because <laughs> you sit there and watch the other five shows in a row and then two seconds of Lucy. You're like, wow, this sucks. And go to bed. Uh, so here I am going to bed at five o'clock in the morning, but you know, for my whole life. And then all of a sudden we're getting up at four thirty. It was, I can't even tell you how crazy and how hard it was. And then when I would do a gig, I mean, forget about, it, you know, but if rascals, you know, I'm making $12,000 in cash. How I can't say no to that. You know, I could fill up a room on a Thursday night that otherwise would be dark. So they made money, I made money, everybody loved it, but holy Christ, you know, then getting up, you know, at five o'clock in the morning at the Turtle Brook Hotel in, in West Orange and racing to Manhattan to be sitting there with a pen at six o'clock. I mean, there were days where I did the whole show and I'd look over at the end of the day and there'd be the stack of jokes I had written. And I'd be like, who the hell wrote those? <laughs> you know what I mean? Because he's so, so whacked out. You know, there's one great Philadelphia story. My first com, uh, my first comedy CD is was called The Joke Man. I mean, all all these albums. If you like filthy jokes, there's nothing funnier. If you don't like filthy jokes, I suck. But if you like dirty jokes, <laughs> all six of my CDs are available on Olio uh, Records. O G L I O Olio Records. And I think all six CDs are like twenty bucks to download the whole six of them. And it's like five hours of dirty jokes <clears throat> but the first one i did do you remember do you remember the funny bone on south street yeah that came in as yeah that was in, i was about to leave the area when that was opening but yeah that was something that opened up yeah it was uh it was surprising because the other clubs i think had closed yeah it was so great this is this is what before it became a black comedy club or whatever you call that but before it became uh you know before it became an urban club it was such a kick-ass club, and I went there and recorded my first re a CD. Now, I record myself all the time. Picture, I get up at 4.30, I go into Manhattan, I do the Stern Show, I drive to Philadelphia, I set up my recording equipment and bring in my CDs, I mean, bring in my albums and my shirts and everything to sell. I go back to the hotel, take a nap for an hour or two, come back, do the show, after the show, I sell all my crap, and after I sell all my crap, I take down all the recording equipment, load all my crap and the recording equipment into the car. Of course, then I go out and get drunk with the waitresses. There was this night that I recorded my scene. I went back to my hotel room, and it was three thirty. I'll never forget this. And I called up, and I, this is long before cell phones. And I said to the girl at the desk. 
I need a wake-up call for 345. <laughs> and she said, that's 15 minutes from now. I said, I know, but if I close my eyes, I'm going to sleep for 10 hours, and i got to get out of here. But I, but I can't sit here and stare at the clock. So I close my eyes. She calls me back. I left at 3.45 in the morning to, to leave Philadelphia to be in my seat at the Stern Show at 6 o'clock in the morning. And, you know, it, it was like Herculean. It was a ridiculous cast. But I was so high and so happy. I mean, I destroyed the room. It was unbelievable. It was sold out. You know, it's, it keeps you high. But holy, the, the wear and tear on your body was crazy. And then as we got more famous, you know, I wouldn't do the Thursday, but I'd do a show on Friday and then race to the airport and fly to wherever and work all weekend and then fly home and then have to start again on Monday. You know, by the end of 15 years, I mean, because you're a comic, all right? If you're making 100 bucks a show as a comic, and all of a sudden you can make seventy five hundred a show. You 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 cannot say no to that. I don't care how tired you are. So you know. So I was, and then I was making more and more, and so I was working just so 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 much. And that's why at the end of fifteen years, I was just so fried. I mean, people say, "Oh yeah, I know what you mean." You know, I have to I have to get up at six o'clock myself, and I'll be like, "What are you talking about? Get up." And <laughs> I have to be in my seat in Manhattan at six o'clock. You know, you know, like if somebody told me I could get up ten minutes later, I would have gone down on. Them. You know what I mean? Like it's like sleep became such a such a commodity. You know, I, I don't mean to go on and on, but you got me going. <laughs> oh no, I, I can imagine what it's like. It's funny because I don't perform much anymore, but I did a show this past weekend, and you know, I got home. Both nights, it was Friday and Saturday. I got home, I think, at like twelve fifteen, and I'm usually I usually fall asleep pretty early. I couldn't get to sleep till like two, and it's because you have that you have that energy in you. Oh yeah, your endorphins and your and your adrenaline. You, you know, you're cranking. You know, you got that. You got to mellow from that. You know. Now, now, when you were doing the Stern show, at what point? Did it start? Did you did you notice when you guys started really swinging up? You're always popular, but then you just took this really. You started syndicating and going out. Did you did you know that was coming? And how did that feel to be in that situation where you just you guys were blowing up? Nobody, nobody, nobody saw it coming. It was, it was. All right, we're going to try syndicating in Philadelphia and, and Washington D.C. And most people, or a lot, a lot of people, said they can't work because. Radio's a local thing, and it can't really happen. And then it worked in Philly and worked in Washington. It took years before we beat Cabela outright, but it caught on right away. And then it was a real big deal. Howard wanted to syndicate to L.A., but the Infinity Broadcasting already had a very successful show on mornings in L.A., and Howard made it part of his contract that he'd be allowed to syndicate to L.A. to a different station if he signed. And Mel Carmazin said, okay. So then all of a sudden we're in L.A., but it was so gradual. You know, I, tell the old, I always tell the same stories, but, like, after we syndicated to Philadelphia, you know, we'd get interviewed all the time, you know. And they, some you know, interviewers would say to me, Matt, you guys are so great. You know, Howard's so terrific. But how long can it last? And then a couple of years would go by, and we'd be on at all these different stations, and all of a sudden we got a Channel 9 show, and they'd say, wow, you guys are really great. 
but how long can it last? And then he writes a book, and we're doing, and we got more stations. People are like, wow, you guys are really great. There must have been, there was so many times where they said, you guys are so great, but how long can it last? And the truth was, nobody knew. Nobody knew. It just kept getting bigger and bigger. And, you know, I'm writing the press, he'd do press conferences where he'd give these ridiculously pompous speeches. You know, it's so funny when Trump makes these horrible pompous speeches. I laugh because it, it, it always reminds me because I, I write these on purpose ridiculously pompous <laughs> speeches. You know, Howard would say, yeah, we're already number one, and I didn't even give the speech yet. You know, I always give him filthy things to say, and I really loved it because if he said something really funny in the press conference, they'd usually write it up in the city where we had just started, and they, the writer would always start the article with something funny. So very often, I, you know, you like you were saying, your, your joke was in the Daily News. Like, I'd see one of his comments that I had written, you know, opening the article. But it, it just got crazier and crazier and crazier. And, and, you know, and the more stations we had, you know, I'd go to Detroit and headline. I'd go to Denver and I'd go to Chicago because nobody else was doing it. You know, nobody else had an act and nobody needed to do it. And... And it was great money, so I was like the ambassador of the show, kind of. And it was, uh, you know, I got I'm out in Phoenix and I'm in Miami, and you know, it was just Baltimore, Philadelphia, Boston. It was just just a field day, and it it really was. You know, you're so caught up in it. It was so gradual, and just it just was snowballing and snowballing and snowballing. You almost didn't even realize it because you were right inside it. You know what I'm saying? Well, what do you think made you guys click so good? I mean, what do you think that made, you know, the people sat there and really dug it? Besides Stern, you guys were a team. I mean, Stern was the quarterback. But what do you think made you guys click well? Well, you know, the thing is, you know, they used to always break my balls. Because I used to say we were the Beatles of radio. And and I know Howard didn't like that because, because he thinks it doesn't matter who's sitting there. That it's all him. And that's fine. And it probably is. <clears throat> but the truth is that we were so, so well-oiled. The first day I walked in on that show and sat down, it was Howard and Robin and Fred and me. And the last day I was on the show in March of 2001, it was Howard and Robin and Fred and me. And, you know, what made the Beatles the Beatles? Nobody knows, but the, but the combination worked. And, and the combination of us, we were all so different. And I like to think we were all smart, all sharp, all firing away. And it was just, it really was magical. You know, I don't care, you know, even if it was 99.99% Howard, it made a difference that me and Fred and Robin were there. It really did. And, you know, in the, in the further years after I left the show, there were times I'd go back in and sit down with them. And I swear to God, Steve, when I'd sit down, in, the, in an instant, we just clicked back into whatever it was. And I don't think there's any denying it. And what it actually was or wasn't, I don't know. You know, I was, we were just four so different people that were so smart and all so funny. But it's hard to put your finger on why. But, you know, it's just like the Beatles. If you take one of them out and put a different person in there, what changes? Nothing changes, just everything changes. It, you know, you people have been sitting around trying to figure this out for a million years. If somebody could figure out what caused it to happen, they would have recreated it. They've been trying to recreate that show, 
you know, for 40 years. You know what I mean? Every damn city in the, you know, give me a Howard Stern show. Give me a Howard Stern show. Nobody's done it yet, you know? Well, what was your relationship with Howard after the show? I mean, he seems like a private person, but you're 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 the writer, so you know you have to have a certain camaraderie. Are you talking about after the show? You mean when the when the when the microphones went off? Yeah, after when the show when the show like when it went, where did you guys did you talk about the next day's show or did you guys just wrap? No, up the show? no, you know we we were pals, we were friendly. In the early days, you used to come in there and uh, sit and and shoot the crap before the show. Uh, and in the early days after the show, a lot of times we'd write, you know, we'd write a bit or we'd write a song parody, but we never, it was never like, Hey, tomorrow is election day. We're going to talk about this or tomorrow, uh, going with the wind is being released. Let's have some jokes about that. There was never any, never any plan. People used, you know, so funny. I go on with these radio guys. They'd be like, God, how early in the morning would you have to be? get there to, to do the show. And I said, well, I'd get there at like 10 seconds to six and sit down and take out my pen. And they just couldn't believe it. But I'd sit down and he'd just start talking. If I came up with something funny to add, I'd write it down and he'd say it. And that's, that's literally what we did. If it was, if it wasn't a song parody or the bit, it was just, you know, sometimes we'd write questions for him if we knew we were having a guest, you know, but, uh, for the most part, it was just fly, fly, fly. And after I started on the show, that gave Fred a conduit to be able to pass notes, too. So the reason Howard was so magnif magnificent was he not only had three different senses of humor, he had three distinctly different senses of humor. He had his sense of humor, which is big and broad and, you know, conceptual. And me, who's like a punchline, pun jerky kind of Punt, you know, uh, writer and Fred, who was like from you know from out of space, literally, and you never knew what was going to come out of Howard's mouth. And you never knew if it was going to be smart or stupid or childish or astute or brilliant. And that you know, it was like he was a grab bag. You reached down his throat and you didn't know what was going to come out. And people just loved it. You know. Now, did something happen with uh, the Stanley Cup when Larry Mario Lemieux came in? Someone told me. I don't know if that's. The story you told? <clears throat> yeah, no, no. What happened was those guys, uh, Mario and the, the guys, uh, Mark uh, Messier. Um, I know it was Mark Messier. I don't know who else. I'm not a big uh, hockey fan, but they had been out all night uh, partying their asses off, and they came in with the Stanley Cup. Stanley Cup. He said, Jackie, go take a dump in, in the Stanley Cup. So I took the Stanley Cup into the bathroom. And took it in the store, but of course, of course, I didn't. You know, I, I, we might be, we might have had a chocolate bar or something. I don't really remember. But then we came back, and Howard's like, "Oh, I can't believe Jackie took a crap in the in the Stanley Cup." And it, to this day, I got hockey people mad at me because they think I disrespected it. I'm like, do you have any idea what it would be like in a tiny radio studio with three big hockey players and three radio people? If, <clears throat> If there was actually crap in the stuff, I could just think about it. But it was it was really it was the shit heard around the world. <laughs> no. it was so funny, and the hockey guys thought, yeah, they were so drunk, and it was it was, it was so wonderful, you know. So now, now you you left in what year? Uh, two thousand and one, March of two thousand and one. And what was the reason for you leaving? I was. I, I, I was so fried, 
and I was I didn't know what I was going to do. I was drinking too much. I had to get divorced. And what I did was I get, I drew a line in the sand for myself of how much I would, you know, it, instead of just saying I got to get out of here, I said, all right, this is what I want to make. And if I can get this or close to it, I'll stay. And then we started trying to negotiate. And they didn't, you know, they hardly negotiated with me. But I was, I'll tell you, the truth is I was making a fortune. And the offer they made me was 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 good, but it, I had drawn a line in my in the sand for myself because I was Steve. I was a multimillionaire living on the water in Bayville, and I was miserable. I, you know, you know what it's like to be tired. I was tired for fifteen years, like walking around, like you know, I was rich and famous and and miserable. And it was nobody's fault but mine. All I had to do was lie down and take a nap, but I couldn't make myself do it. So then I started negotiating, and the whole thing, you know, fell apart. Well, I got all the facts and figures, and everything that was going through my head is in my book. So people can read it and form their own opinion. You know, people are like, how the hell? Are you making that much money? Are you an idiot for walking away? And other people are like, I know what it's like to be that tired. I understand, you know. And uh, to this day, I just tell you, at lunch, I was saying, you know, I, I really don't regret what happened. Because I set myself up for what happened. The, the truth is, after a couple months, I called up and said, listen, you know, I really missed the show. I'd love to come back. And and they never called me back. So I'm like, I'm a hypocrite for saying that's what I wanted because I was ready to, I came and said, I'll take what they offered. But the deal wasn't on the table anymore. But, you know, the, the nuances, I, I'm sure I was well aware that the, the window had closed. But you, you have to walk a mile in somebody's shoes to understand. Well, there's people that get up at 3 o'clock in the morning their whole lives. The people on the Today Show get up at 2.30 to start doing their makeup. But, you know, I just, it wasn't me. You know, all those years of going to bed at 5 o'clock, and all, it's just, you know, good, good decision or bad decision. That was my decision, and I lived with it. And, uh, you know, it's, it's all these years later, and I'm sitting here looking at Long Island Sound, and I got a gorgeous girlfriend and a couple of cats, and I'm not rich, but I'm not poor. And, uh, and then it's, you know, it's, it's been a wild ride, you know. And it's what's amazing is it, it never gets old. People are still talking about and debating the show and me leaving the show. And they're still yelling at me with passion about it. And I'm like, it's that's 16 years ago. And then he's still <laughs> about it. You know, it, it's, it's, really, it's, it's pretty flattering, actually. You know, I'll, let me tell you one thing. I've been telling this anecdote to people. Because it's kind of fun. You know, I get emails and, and texts all the time. And I always tell people on when I get interviewed, if you want to talk to me, I mean, if you want to email me, my email is jokeland at AOL.com. J-O-K-E-L-A-N-D at AOL.com. Um, I get emails from people all the time saying, uh, you say you answer your own emails. Well, let's see if you do. And then I write back and go, boo, you know. Uh, but it's... Um, I got an email from somebody about a year ago, and they said, Jackie, I have to tell you this story. I, I think they said they lived in Seattle or something like that. They said, I just got turned on. I just got serious and got turned on to the Howard Stern show in 2007. And I really loved the show. But then after I started listening, they started, you know, I wound up 
listening to, you know, the best of and Sternthology. You know, they play the old shows from the 80s and 90s. You know what I mean? Right. And, and uh, he said it was so unbelievable. He said it was like having a new favorite band and finding out that their early albums were much better. Wow. Now, how great a comp... Is, is that just like the perfect compliment? Like, I listen to the show, I love the show, but wow, I really love the old shows, which is which is an all-around perfect, you know, that made me feel like a million bucks, so I'd be quoting it, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Now, what made you decide to write a book? It's been a while. You know, people, the book is called The Joke Man, Bow to Stern. You can find it, I'm sure, at Amazon. And you can, I know, if you go to Jackie's website, jokeland.com, there's a bunch of stuff. And you can also, if you want to go, the the exact URL to go right to the Amazon page is jackiethejokeman.com. One word, jackiethejokeman.com. And and it's selling well. It's doing great. And people are mailing it to me, and I'm signing and writing rude stuff to them. And I've done a book signings i've been working on this book for a long time the first forward i wrote uh started with i'm sitting in the airport with gilbert godfrey we're about to go to do a tv show and it's 1994 you know what i mean i started and stopped a bunch of times through a couple times i had a deal then the deal fell through and then each time i would write a little more and get excited and the deal would fall through and this time finally the deal didn't fall through but i i had taken what i wrote I made it into, it was all modular stories, because I created a lot of them for my website way back when. And um, so they're all modular stories, so you can read a story or read three stories or read ten stories, and you can jump in and jump out any place in the book. And I actually wrote so much that I have another 300-page book sitting in my computer, so if and when this sells enough, I I can release the second volume, because there's so much that's not in there. There were major, major parts of the Stern show that just there just was not room in the book, and uh, and it, it was so fun. And when I finally got the deal, I, I'll tell you, I've been chasing this for so long. The fact that it's actually out, it's 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 like being done with finals. You know what I'm talking about? You you right. can't really get it through your head that wow, no, you don't have to study tonight. It, you're done. You know what I mean? So I, I just love it. Now, now, how how has the reaction been? The people that have been reading, have they enjoyed it? Because you are a master storyteller. You know, it's you know you, you tell the stories in the book, and and it's it's you know, and if you love entertainment, you're gonna love this book. I mean, you know, you talk about the comics. You know, when you guys, you know, with Louis Nye and stuff like that. How have people been reacting to the book? And are people sitting there? And is it really sparking old memories for them? The, the well, for the most part, the. Re- the reviews and the reactions are through the roof because it's chrono- chron- chronological. So as you're reading the book, you know you know where you were when this happened. And I remember where I was when Jackie fell off, got pulled over the off the road. I remember where I was when those guys had the Channel Nine show. I remember when those guys put out the movie. You know what I mean? So it's it, and you kind of people are tripping off on their own lives and enjoying it. You know, but. Uh, for the most part, and there's so much stuff in there that people don't know. I just did Gilbert Godfrey's podcast. I, I did it early on, but I just did two new ones where they're interviewing me about the book. And people that love show business and comedy and if they enjoy me or jokes or the Stern Show, there's, there's, you know, people are saying there's certain things in there that are so good it's almost worth it. One guy said, hey, the Rodney Dangerfield chapter is worth the price of the book, you know. So the reaction has really been through the moon. You know, now if you go on Amazon, of course, you know, there's, there's negative reviews. Like, hey, I got to stop writing this review because it's so bad. I got to go throw the book away before I forget. You know, 
you know, people and then people that say, oh, yeah, the five-star reviews were actually written by Jack himself because this book is the worst thing I ever saw. You know, and, and usually people that write reviews like that, there's typos and misspelled words, you know what I mean? Right. So I feel like maybe they didn't even read the book. And I can understand somebody reading, like I have people saying, well, this was supposed to be a big tell-all book. Jackie said it was going to be a tell-all book and it was going to have all this dirt. I never said that to anybody. I never had any intention of it being a tell-all book in any manner of, or shape or form. You know, and, and some people are like, how could you trash a show that was so good to you? It's a love letter to the show. I got another review where somebody said, I think he just did this this book to try and get back on the show because it's it, this show's, you know, it, it's, it's sucking on Howard. You know, and I just, I'm nice. You know, I say great things about him and Fred and Robin because I mean them. You know changed my story my whole life. I've never I didn't leave there because I was mad at everybody. I left because I was exhausted and wanted more money, you know. But some people don't want, you know, some people don't want to hear the easy explanation, you know what I mean? Right. <laughs> I got to ask you a question. You know, you, you always do the stump the joke, man. Have you ever been stumped? All the time. All the time. You know, it's so funny. I got so many stories about that. I was on stage at Rascals in West Orange 20 years ago. And I know because this was on actually on the TV show. It's hosting Rascals TV show. And she asked me a joke. And I couldn't believe that I didn't know the answer because it was exactly the kind of joke that I tell and that I would know. And I couldn't remember it. And she told me the punchline. And I said, I can't believe... I didn't know that. And she said, neither can I, because I stumped you with the same exact joke on this same stage two years ago. <laughs> so stuff slips to the crack. She said, why do they bury Jewish men standing up? Do you know that? No. <laughs> so the change won't fall out of their pockets. <laughs> Which is a great joke, and I didn't know it. And I get stumped. I got stumped on the air on the Jim Kerr Q104 morning show the other day. This is the worst holiday joke, and it's so funny. What do you get when you throw a bomb in a well? I don't know. No well, no well. <laughs> See, you know, there's... It's so bad, but it's so fun, and people get, they get so excited. You know, Steve, it is a no-lose proposition for me, because I go on stage, I know every joke, and it makes people crazy. And they go nuts. But then when somebody stumps me with a joke, they go even crazier. So it's a no-lose proposition. You see what I'm saying? It's unbelievable. I, I got one for you. And and someone told me this, and half the people don't get it. And it's it's a dumb joke. Let me see. if you, You'll probably know. Why do mice have small balls? Because so few of them know how to dance. Yes. <laughs> that is, that's the worst joke in the world. But they, they don't see that's antiquated because they don't call a dance a ball anymore. Right. You know, but I, I, but I do know all the jokes. You know, old stupid jokes like that. I just, I know. I love that's, that. But joke. you know, I've been, you know, I just been around too long. I, I tell people uh, it's funny. James Toback is back in, back in the news because he's, you know, groping women. But he put out the Mike Tyson documentary years ago, and it was, I, it might have won the Academy Award. It was so great. And I was at the party in Sundance. My friend Tom Bernard is the president of Sony Pictures Classics, and he would take me to all these great things. So here we are at Sundance at James Toback's release party 
for the Mike Tyson documentary. And Mike Tyson's there and all the luminaries from the industry and the, you know, actresses and actors. I mean, it's the glitter eye of, of the movie business, Sundance. And I'm at the party with my friend. And Tom walks me up and says, James, this is Jackie the Joke Man. He goes, oh, Jackie, big fan. I got one for you. And tells me a joke. And before he gets two words out, I told him the punchline. He said, all right, all right, hold on, hold on. And he tried another one. And of course I knew it. And he tried another one. And of course I knew it. And he was, now this is his party for the Mike Tyson documentary. He's the star. Yeah, I mean, this is his big night. <laughs> he's frustrated. He walks away and he's talking to who's who in the movie business. And every five minutes, I'm not kidding, he would circle back and go, all right, here's one. And I would know it. And he would come back to me five or seven times. Yeah, the whole time he's walking around taking compliments on his documentary, all he could think about is what the hell joke can I tell him that he won't know? And he never got me, and it made him crazy. And I love telling stories like that because it's 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 the only thing I know how to do. But I'm good at it, you know. And that's a funny story. It's awesome. Well, you know what? I, I want to thank you for coming on, Jackie. This was great. It was uh, it was good. To, I'm glad you responded to my tweet. Now, give the people all your info. Give your people how they get in touch with you. Please, please. Buy a book. Now, I'll tell you my rap, Steve. I tell everybody, listen, if you buy holiday presents for Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, and you know, everybody buys a stack of presents, and you got them for your family and your friends, and you got to wrap them. Think about when you're wrapping gifts. Think about how it feels when you get to a book. It's almost like, ah, it's like a vacation because it's so easy to wrap a book. Meanwhile, if you got a friend that's a Stern fan or a comedy fan, this is a brand new book. It just came out. It's so unique. It's the perfect gift for a Stern fan. Even if you hate the Stern show and hate me, your father or your uncle or your cousin loves it. It'll make the perfect gift. It's easy to wrap. Not only that, you can buy it, read it, and then wrap it up and give it to somebody. So, and if you buy five books, it takes care of all your shopping. Then you go out and get drunk. You don't have to go to the mall. You don't have to fool around on the web. So, Go and buy some books. It's it's JackieTheJokeMan.com. JackieTheJokeMan.com. It's, it's like 20 bucks or something. It's not too expensive. And it's also available on Kindle. And it's also available on audiobook. And Artie Lang did the forward. But he also read the forward for the audiobook. So it's Artie doing the forward for the audiobook. And then me doing the voice for the rest of the book, and the people are just loving it, because they know my voice from the radio, so they're like, wow, this is a whole trip. Uh, I tweet jokes every day, at Jackie Martling, J-A-C-K-I-E-M-A-R-T-L-I-N-G, every day at 4.20 p.m. International Marijuana Time. I said, if you send me an email, jokeland at AOL.com, uh, you get on my email list, you can ask me a question, you can ask me anything, I'll write back, but you get on the email list, you get jokes once a month, and my joke line is still going after 38 years, 516-922-WINE, 516-922-9463. And um, well, when is this going to be posted? This will be playing on a bunch of different internet radio stations next weekend, and it'll be posted to my site in about a week. Okay, well, at any rate, uh, Saturday night of Thanksgiving weekend, I'm at the Raz Room in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And December 2nd, I'm at... Uh, mcguire's in bohemia on long island and uh come out to a show i love you come out buy a book i'll sign it 
Steve, I really, really appreciate it. I know I'm a little long-winded, but... Uh, oh, man, it was great. It was great. So, people, please check out Jackie. Also, follow me on Twitter. That's at CooperTalk. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 650 episodes up there. Also, email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Anyway, you guys, don't forget, drink your, drink your water, take your vitamins, eat your vegetables. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. You guys have a great weekend.